This week, that time a ghost locked me out of the custom house in Hamilton, and the last hangings in Canadian history which happened in Toronto. And I talk about public speaking, if there's time. Now, I used to be involved with a special event that took place in Hamilton's Custom House. This is a very haunted place. I really enjoyed doing the events there, and it's something I remember very fondly. We no longer go there. It was a decision by the museum who runs the place, and uh, we respect that. They wanted to be associated more with the history than the ghost stories and the ghost tours and the hunts were getting quite popular. So for that reason, they pulled back on it. I'm holding on hope that uh, they'll come back in the future and that we can work something out and can tell those ghost stories again. For now, I do the podcast. I write articles. I'll get the ghost stories out there somehow. So there was walks to tours and then there's hunts or investigation nights. I love the investigation nights. Not something that I am as excited about as doing the tours and telling you guys stories, but I did enjoy them. So the basic idea behind it is what we do in Cambridge currently is to bring a bunch of regular folks from the street to come and do a special event and then, um, you know, give out some investigative tools and you would go around and investigate the place. And it was, you know, exciting. Haunted places like the Custom House, you know, never disappointed. Things were constantly happening. It was a very active place. So, and then at the end of the night, you know, we all got together. You talked about what happened. And I was always amazed how, you know, the story from, you know, little Sally over in the corner there and little Johnny over in the other corner, how when they told their stories, even though they don't know each other, because they were in the same building at the same time, for some reason, there was these consistencies that would occur. And that's one of the things I loved about this type of event is that you could have that experience as similar between two people who never met each other on the same night. It would prove that whatever energy was active inside the building at the time was palpable and it would be proving itself through those stories is uh, very exciting not so much exciting though as a two-month period that occurred oh i I have to say it's 2014 I'm, i'm i'm not sure it could have been 2015 but there was this two month period where the main spirit of the building the very legendary and infamous dark lady this is a spirit that's been known about technically, since the 1800s. The oldest known ghost in Hamilton, for sure. One of the oldest known ghosts in Canada. Very detailed legend about this young lady coming over from England, and she was murdered by the ship's captain. And when he docked, he brought her body into the basement of the custom house, which was newly built and not fully constructed, and placed her body inside the wall of an area that would eventually be known as the Vault. And if you see this area in the basement with this curved and low ceiling, you understand why they called it the vault. So the spirit of this woman in the legend, whether it is true or not, has somehow manifested itself over the years. And we've had dealings with her where you would understand 
the experience that was occurring, she somehow made herself known. Even though she wasn't the only energy inside that very storied building, she seemed to be the most in control, definitely the most well-known. For that reason, you kind of gave her her respect. Now, there was one area, though, I did let go. This was an area that surrounded a poem that was told about her. So there's a poem from the 1800s which talks about the woman in black. And some say historically this was just the poet Alexander Wingfield uh, talking about alcoholism. And he called alcoholism the woman in black. And that could very well be true. But it, it took on a whole new life of its own. Because the story really does sound like he's talking about a ghost. And if you were looking at it just on that surface level, you would agree he's talking about a ghost. Calling her the woman in black, eventually it'd be known as the dark lady. And that's the spirit that surrounds that building. So you always brought her respect. But when we told this poem, which was a piece of her history, if she is a ghost, when we told this poem, there was descriptions in it that were very... Um, disrespectful, I guess you could say. Basically, they described her as a nine-foot-high goat demon woman with hooves and horns. It's, I think any woman would be angry if that's how they were described in something that became famous. But we had to tell it. I mean, you think about it, right? I mean, we had to tell it. It was a part of the history. It was part of the ghost story. It really shows off the fact that how long... This legend has existed. I believe it was written in the 1870s. So we had to tell it. We didn't really think twice about it. Until that period of time in 2015, there was a two-month stretch where the building turned on us. That when we did the ghost walks, things were decent, right? Because it was quick groups in and out. But when we did the investigation nights, it was almost like they were trying to communicate their anger to us, whether it be they or just the dark lady herself. So we would have these um, uh, things that were occurring. There was quite a few of them that were just little subtleties that would happen. And one of the things that always amazed me is there was uh, what I like to call a blackout, where all the ghosts in the building or something would be blocking them. So most nights we would get even the smallest amount of of evidence that would occur. But for some reason on on that blackout night, nothing. Completely quiet. Nothing at all. Very frustrating when you're trying to run an event where people paid to be there. (laughs) You know, it's a little bit of entertainment. Not to say that the ghosts need to perform for me. Uh, I'm just saying it's a good chance for them to communicate through the tools and the divination tools. But for some reason on those nights for that two-month stretch, nothing. Little things would happen before and afterwards. And one of the main things was during our communication session, which I uh, we use a, a very feared divination tool known as a spirit board. You might know it as a Ouija board. I am a fan of it. I've used them for many years. I'm going to do an episode in the near future where I cover my thoughts on that. So we would use that, and almost immediately, even though the rest of the night was quiet, almost immediately a strong energy comes through and starts talking to us and identifies itself as the Dark Lady. 
uh, gets a little bit, um, uh, you know, um, active. And, uh, you know, we, we, we learned that she was upset. Other stuff happened. I'll cover on a future podcast. But in the end, we learned that she was upset because we were telling the poem. So at that point, I promised her the poem would not be told anymore. And things calmed down after that. However, there is one occurrence that sticks in the back of my mind that I will never forget. And I got to tell you about that right now. So this happened during that two-month period. I mentioned there was the little weird things that have occurred. This was one of them. And of course, it's me by myself, an empty building. I'm there. Thank goodness it's still light out at that point. Otherwise, it would be way too much. Uh, but I'm there to set up by myself. So I go into the building. I um, uh, bring down the security system. I, I start uh, setting up. And I realized I had left some stuff in the car. Car's not far away. It's just down in the driveway beside the building. So I'm, I'm going out the door. I, I brought the keys just in case, but I also thought, okay, I want to make it easy for myself. So I, um, I, I didn't want the lock bar to engage. So it had one of those automatic lock bars on the inside. So if I let the door go, a very heavy wood door would slam. The lock bar would engage, and I would have to use the keys to get back in. So I didn't want that. So what I did is, and it was a little trick... You turn the deadbolt lock, you, you, you engage the deadbolt lock, and then the lock comes out so that when the door closes, it will hit the deadbolt lock and not the lock bar, and the door will, you know, stay open for me. So I do that. I'm proud of myself. I got this amazing idea. I'm sure everybody else knew it before me, but for me, it was amazing. I walk back to the car, open the back door. I take out the two bags that I needed, lock it up, and I start walking back. And it's not very far, but there was like this little slowdown feeling, if you know what I'm talking about. So it was almost like the moment slowed down for me. And I'm holding the bags and something tells me to look up. And I do. And the door, I'm looking at the door with the deadbolt lock engaged. And I watched as the deadbolt lock turned itself, disengaged the door lock and the lock bar engaged, locking me out. Now, thank goodness, because at this point we were doing uh, the unsupervised tours. There wasn't an employee there for us to unlock the door for me. If I had left the keys inside, I would have to call somebody, bring them in. It would take forever. The event would have gone late. It would just been absolutely horrible. And I do think to this day that was the reaction that the dark lady was shooting for to affect the evening and some of the other smaller things that occur tell me this true so in the end how i feel about this i don't know i mean it's one of those things in the moment where my mind was trying to rationalize it and tell me oh you know it's it's uh, maybe there was somebody inside who snuck in when i wasn't looking and turned the deadbolt lock it's funny how the mind does that in those moments but when it was done when i realized what had happened i was surprisingly not as scared as you'd think i would be I still went back into the building alone and dark inside, dark inside, light outside, but eventually it got dark outside as well. And at the end of the night, I had to kind of clean things up, including uh, taking stuff back up to the attic by myself. So needless to say, that experience did sit in the back of my mind the whole time. Was I too scared to do my job? Definitely not. 
that is not going to be the case in any situation when it comes to the ghost tours or the ghost hunts and the investigation nights. I'm always going to go through and, and complete that no matter what happens because it's really what I am looking for when it comes down to it. And I have been desensitized to this stuff over the years, realizing it's not anything that can hurt me. So the experience really just sits in my back of my mind as something that was creepy that happened to me. And it's a story that I can then tell, you know, in, in, in future events. And of course, this podcast. The following is a little bit of dark history. I like to pepper these podcasts with dark history whenever I can. And if it's not something I've ever said before or you missed it, you will note that I am a big believer in the idea that history and ghosts are connected. One leads to the other. The energy that surrounds a place is very, very important. And this is why when you go in and investigate the place as an investigator, that you always look into the history first. As the lead investigator, definitely don't allow your team, the scientific side and the psychic side, only the coordinator looks into the history and understands that so that when things occur throughout the night of the cold psychics and cold investigators that you can you can see it. You can see the connections that are being made in the background related to that history. So for this, I'm going to talk a little bit about different locations. We're going to focus mainly on the city of Toronto. But to start this out, the idea of public executions in general. This is a brutal piece of any country's history. And to make it abundantly clear, I do not believe in it. I think it was uh, gruesome. I think it was barbaric. But it did happen. So we do talk about it. My own home city of Hamilton has a very interesting story about a man named Michael Vincent, where in the 1820s, his hanging was botched, turning it from a merciful hanging into suffering. And the story around that is a shameless plug is featured on the Hamilton's Dark History Tour, which I just happen to be leading the first one of the season this Friday, March 25th, 2022. So if you happen to be in Hamilton or near it during that time, you want to come out, you can book at ghostwalks.com. But it's just the idea of these hangings that occurred botching them was more common than you think. And unless you were one of the witnesses there, which public hangings was outlawed in Canada, I believe, uh, in the late 1800s, but hangings still were done in behind the scenes, usually at the jails, like the Ottawa jail, or in Hamilton, the Barton jail, or the Don jail in Toronto, which is going to come into the following story. But to give you an idea of how these things can be botched, there is a story I'll just briefly uh, mention here from a very famous haunted location in the States known as West Virginia Penitentiary, in a town called Moundsville. This is a very creepy place and a history that reads like a horror movie. The experience, um, I, I forget the name offhand, but one of the men, they used to do hangings at the North Gate. If you look up the pictures, there's pictures of the North Gate. It was the original side of the prison, and then the rest of it got built over time. So they would do hangings in the North Gate, 
and one of the men that was uh, hanged, I guess it must have been a newbie and executioner, similar to what happened to Michael Vincent, where you know you make mistakes in a time where you should not be making mistakes, and uh, they put the noose around the condemned's neck, but he didn't tighten it enough. I don't know if you thought, oh, he didn't want it to be uncomfortable or something, but he left it loose. And when the condemned man dropped through the um, the trap door, he fell right through the noose. Now, here's the thing with the West Virginia Penn Northgate. It's not like the 13 steps up to the scaffold that you see with most public hangings. It is a massive gate that you can bring um, the horse-drawn carriages through. And they, for some reason, decided to put the trap door in the roof of the gate. So basically, you have to climb up. It has to be 30 or 40 steps to get up to this area, what was the gallows, and the people could watch from below. So the people can't see the executioner and the condemned person. They can only wait for the trap door to open and they're they're looking straight up at that trap door as the the body falls through. So this condemned guy, he falls through the trap door, everybody's witnessing it, and then falls through his noose and then falls maybe another 12 to 15 feet uh, to the concrete below. He's not dead. He's hurt and stunned. And you would think that this would be one of those situations in the olden days where they'd be like, okay, God wanted that fella to live because, you know, he guided the hands to make the loose noose and he fell through and he's still alive. We should just, you know, keep him in jail. He's He should live. You would think. I mean, that's kind of common sense. But, I mean, if you consider public executions, they were the entertainment of the day. So for this reason, the executioner, you know, probably like was embarrassed Good thing he was wearing a mask or we just saw him blushing, but he probably walked down those stairs. Not probably. He did. He walked down those stairs, grabbed the condemned man by the ear and dragged him back up those 30 steps, wrapped the noose, made sure it was nice and tight and dropped him through. This time, thankfully, it worked. So I'm sorry to laugh. It's just kind of a ridiculous situation. But I mean, that gives you an idea how public executions and hangings were not always done right. And that's going to factor into the following. So just as a warning, we've already got kind of gruesome, but this is going to get even worse. I'm going to now talk about the two last men in Canadian history to be hanged. And after them, this was the end of capital punishment completely. We didn't, like some of the American states, we didn't switch to the electric chair. We didn't switch to lethal injection. This was where capital punishment in Canada ended in the year 1962. So it uh, involves two men. One was named Robert Turpin. The other is Arthur Lucas. Now, Robert had just committed a robbery. Everything was planned out perfectly, He got away and was driving home when his one mistake was found by a random cop. He had a broken taillight. So Officer Frank Nash pulls Turpin over 
walks up to the window and Robert's in there. He's praying that the cop doesn't recognize him. I guess some information went out about the man who did a robbery. And Robert rolls down the window, looks up to see recognition on Officer Nash's face. So Turpin, his instincts are are buzzing. He pulls out a gun at the officer, jumps out and runs to the back of the car. Nash pulls out his gun and is firing back. He hit Turpin in the arm and a second bullet grazed Turpin's cheek. So actually cut through his cheek as it went past his face. Uh, That miss would turn to be brutal for Officer Nash himself because when Turpin shoots back, he hits Nash in the stomach. Now, this is a fatal wound. Robert Turpin is arrested, not for just the robbery, but the robbery, and as well, murdering a cop. Now, Arthur Lucas is a very different type of criminal. He was believed to be a pimp. He was believed to be a criminal and a gang member from the city of Detroit in the U.S. And after he had moved to the city of Toronto, it was a member of his gang that was believed to be an informant, along with that member's wife, they were murdered inside of their home. Now the police come, evidence is collected, and they found a ring that belonged to Arthur Lucas was lying in a pool of blood inside the house, and as well they found the murder weapon. Now this one gets a little bit shaky for me. I mean, the ring lying there is also a little shaky. Like, why would you leave a ring? It's something you... You probably know, especially a, an experienced pimp and criminal like, like Arthur Lucas. But the ring is there, but then they found the gun. And the gun wasn't anywhere that was weird. The gun was found on the side of the road on the Burlington Skyway. Now, the Burlington Skyway is the bridge, the large bridge that uh, connects as you're going along the QEW before you get to the industrial sector of Hamilton. It's over the Hamilton Harbor. So they're driving along and there's just a random gun just sitting on the side of the road. It's not in the water. And if you ever you look up look up a picture of the Skyway, if you don't know what it looks like, if you're in the right lane, you can just toss that gun out the window and just a light toss and the weight of the gun would take it over the side very easily and have it go into the water below. And nobody in their right mind is swimming down to the bottom of a very polluted Hamilton Harbor. So all you'd got to do is just take it over the side of the bridge and the gun would have never been found. Yet for some reason, it's at the side of the road. I mean, this is something that can be totally questioned. This is something that is believed to be a frame job that Arthur Lucas was framed. Not to say his other criminal activities didn't warrant him being arrested, but these murderers took it to a new level. So the trials are held in Toronto's old city hall, and both trials for Robert and Arthur uh, seem to be rushed in a way. So both trials, hugely popular in the society, reporters and everything, both of them were done in a 12-month period. It is very rare to say that the Canadian government has their services running this efficiently. In other countries, maybe that could happen in a 12-month period. Not here. So they did them in a 12-month period, got to the very end, and got their guilty verdict. You almost think because of the rush that they were trying to beat a deadline. And you know why you think that? 
Because the answer is they were trying to beat a deadline. So the deadline they were trying to beat, the end of capital punishment in Canada. And they did. So Arthur and Robert were sentenced to be hanged until dead. Now, this did happen in the year 1962. It happened in Toronto in the very infamous Don Jail. There is an article on the Ghost Walks website in regards to that place. It is a horrid jail. It thankfully closed today. It's now part of a hospital. But um, the, 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 the inmates there, if you spent a day in the Don Jail, it was almost considered a few days because of how terrible a, an experience it was. It's still very haunted, very well known for being haunted today. But for 1962, they set up this, uh, this makeshift gallows inside the jail, and there was a chaplain that oversaw the hangings to make sure, um, you know, that their souls were saved. They were, you know, for the, the Catholic side of things. And when it was all said and done, the chaplain went home. His wife opens the door and she is shocked. Her husband is covered in blood. And he was the one who would tell her the story and then eventually told everybody the story. If it wasn't for this chaplain, chances are what happened behind those closed doors at the Don Jail would have been swept under the rug and we would have never known the brutal and gruesome end to this barbaric practice in Canada. So here's what he said. He said when Robert Turpin was hanged, he died right away. He fell, his neck broke, it was a quick and merciful death. But that didn't happen for Arthur Lucas. He had something wrong with his rope. Somehow, the way they tied it, maybe it was on angle, maybe it was too tight, I don't know the mechanics behind that, but something was done wrong. Because when Arthur Lucas dropped, they tied wrong, when he dropped, the rope sliced into his neck. Halfway decapitated his head, before they cut the rope and his body hit the ground. This is where the blood spurted out. This is how the chaplain got covered in that blood. So because of Arthur Lucas' experience of almost being decapitated, this is similar to the final hanging that happened publicly in West Virginia. Even though they didn't get rid of capital punishment, they stopped doing public hangings because they realized that people were disgusted by this practice. They no longer saw it as entertainment. This is going back well over 100 years ago and imagine how people would feel about it today. And because in the 1960s this occurs and that chaplain tells everybody who would listen, including news reporters, this is the reason why there was such a strong, brutal end to capital punishment in Canada. And my thought is, as an optimistic ghost tour guide is that it will never return and one of the reasons why it will never return is because of this brutal end and i will hold on to that hope until the end of time now sadly as i cyclically predicted in the beginning i'm not going to have time to talk about the following i'm going to uh, save it for next week uh, what I'll be talking about next week is a bit of public speaking experience for myself. I hope to add these segments as it is a part of my career. And I'm going to talk about a technique. If you're talking to a group of people, the idea of melding into the crowd, of matching their energy, and of basically showing yourself as a very confident and powerful public speaker. But that will be next week.
for now, the show has come to an end. And as a final note, as I've already mentioned, I will be leading the first Dark History Tour in Hamilton this Friday, the 25th. If you're interested, you can book at ghostwalks.com. Hope to see you there, and I'll talk to you next week.